Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life. That's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply and understand the entire mortgage process fully, so you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Hi, Allison. Hi, and we also have in the studio today, Sean Gates, planner with Motley Fool Asset Management, a sister company of the Motley Fool. Nice. <laughs> and you're back in the studio today to help us answer some more questions. Glad to be here. It's summer, which means interns have descended upon Motley Fool HQ, and we thought it would be a great opportunity to learn more about what money issues are weighing on the minds of 20-something-year-olds. Turns out the kids have questions that you probably have too. Questions like, is it better to save for a house or retirement? How soon should you start paying off student loans? And are high reward credit cards worth the fee? All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Like I said, it's summer, which means that there are a lot of 20-something-year-olds running around the Motley Fool, more than usual, and maybe even younger than 20-year-olds. I don't even know how old these kids They're are. They're in college, so some of them might, could be 18, 19, who knows? Yeah, so we thought we would ask them, what is weighing on the minds of young Americans today when it comes to their money? And these are the questions they gave us. So, are you ready to take a stab at them? We're ready. All right, here's the first one. It comes to us from Ellie. My name's Ellie Teller, and I'm from North Carolina. And I'm working with the client experience team in wealth management. Growing up, my dad always made a deal with me that if I got a scholarship to school, he would give me a chunk of my college fund. So when I received a scholarship to go to UNC um, my senior year of high school, he gave me a chunk under my name, so I have full control over it. But right now I have it invested pretty um, conservatively, I guess, in the hopes that if I want to go to grad school or, you know, put, like, buy a car or do something like that, then it's definitely going to be there. And I guess my question is, um, what does Motley Fool think about if I should be investing it more, like, have more risk in what I'm investing and, um, like, yeah, how I should, like, have my assets um, allocated so that I'm getting the best return on my, my money that, I guess, fell upon me. The boring advice is, as always, you, what you need the money for and when determines what you do with it. So, if you think you need a car soon, Ellie. By the way, congratulations on the scholarship. Right. First of all, that's pretty it's awesome. Um, so, but if you think you're going to need a car soon, or you're going to go to grad school right after undergrad, it probably does make sense to keep it pretty safe. That said, you are spending your summer here at the Motley Fool. Hopefully, you learned a little bit about investing. So, I don't think it's a bad idea to take a little bit of that money. And invest in maybe a few of the stocks that you learned about while you're here. Not very much, because generally you want to leave that money alone for at least five years. But why not start learning about investing with some of that money? Yeah, and one thing I've noticed with millennials and slightly younger folks is that they are more conservative than the generation above them. And so I don't know exactly how you're positioned, Ellie, but, and I can ask because you're in my department, so maybe I will, but <laughs> the, the uh, you know, you're probably more conservative than even we're thinking. Like, you might have cash for a large portion of this. I've seen that many times with folks in your age demographic. And so, to Bro's point, taking a nibble at some stocks, but even just generically going more aggressive in just stock index funds. Yep. You're not going too far over anybody's ski tips at that point for some portion of it. And then still implement the stocks is a great option. Yep. All right. The next question comes to us from Brian. My name is Brian Salvi, and I'm from the University of Virginia. My question is whether it's a better idea to save for a house or to save for retirement. 
Well, I think everybody should save for retirement as soon as possible. You don't need a house necessarily, especially when you are in your early 20s. You don't know where you're going to live. You don't know if and when you're going to get married, how many kids you're going to have. A house is further off, but the sooner you start saving for retirement, the better off you're going to be. Also, if you get to a point where you start saving for retirement and eventually want to buy the house, there are ways to use some of your retirement funds to buy the house. I don't necessarily recommend it, but it might help you to know that you have that option if you're worried about saving for retirement means you won't be able to buy the house. Yeah, I'm glad you bring that point up because I often just kind of forget that you can use your retirement funds for houses. But so for me, just as a point of example, so I, I currently don't have a house and I am simultaneously saving for retirement and a house. And it's interesting because you can structure this in two different ways. There are folks who save better if they have bucketed goals. So if you have a pot of money that's dedicated towards the house and a pot of money that's de- dedicated towards retirement, and the investment profile is different for each bucket, I take the tack that I just have my savings goal in mind. So I try to save as much as I can, let's call it 60% of my salary. And that entire bucket of money is just invested as aggressively as I want it to be. And then when I'm ready, I will just draw on whatever amount of funds I have available, except funds that aren't accessible, like a 401k, to be my down payment on a house. So you can take two tax and just choose which one fits your profile. And and we should let everyone know, you are a super saver. You are one of those guys who just saves tons of money. Yeah, and I mean, that's very helpful because now I have whatever down payment I need. So I can afford you know, a relatively nice size house in Alexandria, um, and it won't affect my retirement goals. So it gives you ultimate flexibility. And so when you say start saving for retirement as soon as possible, is that as soon as you have your first job? Is yeah, as that... soon as as soon as you have an income. So if you're at a if you if first first job is a company that has a four hundred one k or four hundred three b or some type of retirement plan, that is certainly one place to look. But even if they don't or the plan stinks, you can always contribute to an IRA as long as you have earned income. And generally speaking, if you're younger, it's probably better to start with the Roth IRA, and the Roth has even more flexibility than a traditional IRA if you want to tap that money before you're 59 and a half. And a callback to the bucketing strategy is that a lot of the times folks always, you know, one of the common regrets is I didn't start saving early enough. Yep. And I think it tends to stem from this, well, I didn't have a goal in mind to save for. So if, if you don't have buying a house on your radar, you won't be saving for it. And so if you just have this catch all, I'm going to save something per month to Bro's point. You're starting early. You're getting compounding going, and then you can leverage it and, you know, allocate it towards goals as needed. Yep. All right. Next question comes from Ryan, not Brian. It should also be noted that we already have like 40 Ryans and Brians at the Motley Fool, at <laughs> so, least. No job for you guys. Sorry, we are we <laughs> are chock full of Ryans and Brians. <laughs> My name is Ryan Reeves. I'm from Southern California, and I go to Pepperdine University. And my question is, how should I size my positions in my portfolio? Should I start with equal amounts, or just bigger positions for a higher conviction holding, or something different altogether? I would say it depends on your success in terms of determining whether your higher conviction investments turn out to be higher returning investments, if you've demonstrated to say, like, yeah, I should have twice as much as this investment because it's going to do better, and you tend to be right, sure, go for it. Uh, but generally speaking, for people who are starting out, I think equal weighted is probably better. Yeah, and I think it's important to sort of the audience of this. This is advice directed to the younger generation, and so I tend to include myself in that still, although 
vanishingly small <laughs> connection. <laughs> but uh, I, I would uh, take the tack that you want to be as concentrated as you can, as, as your risk tolerance will allow. So, so I have several positions that might be closer to 20% of my overall portfolio, and that's just because I know that I have a timeline where I can sustain significant downturns. So let's say I'm invested 20% in Google. Uh, I'm very comfortable with that. It's a great way to generate significant returns on wealth. Buffett got primarily wealthy from investing primarily in Coke and then supplementing it here and there. Um, but that's very specific to the younger generation. And is that because those positions, because you have a higher conviction, or because you bought them and they've grown to a bigger part of your portfolio and you're okay with that? So the latter now, but when I first did it, it 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 has not grown to 20%. It, it's, it is a 20% position, and I've sort of like pared it down okay. and just maintained a 20% position. So I started with a 20% position, didn't know it would do as well as it has, and continue to go from here. Got it. So, so long as you're young, keep it equal weighted, because at this point you don't know your risk tolerance, nor do you know how good you are at this, correct? To a degree, but certainly, um, if you're going to have a concentrated portfolio, it's riskier. Yes. And if you're younger, you can stand that. Someone going into retirement with 20% of their portfolio one stock would make me more nervous. Right, and I would say you definitely want to try. If you, if you, let's just say you say, okay, I'm going to take a 20% position and be more concentrated than the average bear. Sit with that for a little while, with that one outsized position, because when the stock market, when that stock corrects, you will feel it. <laughs> you know, you'll look at your portfolio and it'll be down, you know, 15 grand or, or something significant to you as a young investor, and you need to make sure that you can handle that. And make those mistakes early on in yep. your investing career. <laughs> right. Right. Yep. Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. And Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org, number... 3030. All right, let's head back to the mailbag. And the next question comes to us from Anish. Anish Susarla. And my question is Should I take out a high rewards credit card even if it has an expensive membership fee? Yeah, so I love this question. I consider myself an aficionado of travel hacking, and this comes up all the time. So, yes, I do think that travel credit cards or any credit cards with high annual fees can make sense, but, and there's always a but, it needs to be a function of how much time you're willing to spend paying attention to it. So, you know, that fee is going to renew every year, and you need to make sure that you're still getting the value for it. There's also a ton of different nuances of each type of Travel Rewards credit card. So, depending on the value of the points that you associated with it, or just if there are any travel credits, you know, if you just get a free $300 towards a future flight, that automatic, let's, let's say the annual fee is $450 for the Premier credit cards, and that's about the top end. Most of them will come with a $300 travel credit. So, if you happen to like to travel, that automatically reduces the annual cost to $150. So, that's significantly less than you might have thought you're putting out. And then you can look at all of the other potential benefits that exist around that card and see if there's $150 worth of value. Oftentimes, there's much more than $150 worth of value. 
But someone like Anish is in college. He probably is not putting a ton of stuff on a credit card. True. That's true. And so that that what I just framed out is not a function of how much you spend on it. Um, sometimes they will have minimum spend thresholds. So mm-hmm. in in this example, a, a common popular card has let's say a three thousand dollar minimum spend. So if you're not able to put at least three thousand dollars on that card, then you're not going to get any of the rewards associated with it. And so then it wouldn't make sense. So that's a very good point. It is easy to game that system though. You can buy sort of neutral money. Is this the credit card churning too? There's yeah, also there's that. a whole yeah, okay. like a whole yeah, a whole <laughs> rabbit hole you can go down. I mean you can buy gift cards or you know you can prepay for groceries that you know you're gonna get a Trader Joe's sort of credit or something like that so that you know it's coming back to you. But again, all of this takes time and attention. And it can overwhelm you if you start going too deep. Right. For someone who's just like me, I do pay for a Premier card, but we put everything on it just because of the money we get back. And we ran the math and looked at our spending, and is it worth it? And, and for us, it pays. It's paid off. Do you have a Do you have a website or a resource that you recommend to find all these great credit cards? Yeah. So I'll make a plug for one that I leverage quite a bit. Doctor of Credit is an amazing website for just a whole bunch of travel hacking related things, making sure that they do deep dives on each credit card and actually do the math for you in a lot of instances. So I leverage that all the time. The next question comes to us from Addie. I'm Addie Lallier. I'm from North Carolina and I'm a senior at UNC Chapel Hill. I think there's that a stigma against kind of the word retirement and 401k, um, but I definitely think it's important to start thinking about it now. And so my question is, what age do you think is appropriate to really start, and by what increments, or how much should you start putting away? Well, as we suggested earlier, saving for retirement as soon as you can is probably a good idea. And if you really are starting like right at 22 when you get your first job, you could probably target 10% and probably be okay. And that 10% is a combination of what you put in and if you receive an employer match. Um, Surveys that I have read over the years and studies said that if you're starting in your mid 20s, you should really be looking at like about 15%. So that's about what you would start at. Yeah, I think it's pretty easy to just kind of toe the line around 15%. But if you want to retire, if you have aspirations of retiring early, then you might think that that needs to be significantly higher. So some you could have ranges and say, bare minimum, I'm going to do 15% because that means I'll be okay for retirement, barring any sort of unforeseen circumstances, up to 50% of your sa- of your income. And then you're looking at being easily able to retire you know, five or more years earlier. Right. And then that, that does assume that you retire around in your mid-60s, that 10 yeah. to 15%. But if you put it off until you're 30 or 35, then you're, you're looking at 15 to 20%. The longer you wait, the more you have to save. Um, but we we all can't be like Sean, who saves 60% of his income. Yeah. <laughs> so let's say I'm a parent of a kid who's in college or just starting their first job. Can I contribute to their retirement account? Because I feel like that could be pretty compelling if I said to my kid, listen, if you contribute 10% to your retirement account, I will match it or something like that to try to give them some free money and get them doing it. Were you, were you at our house yesterday? Because I had this exact conversation with my son who was starting his lifeguarding job. Yes. Just t- turned 16, and we're going to open up a Roth IRA, and he has to have earned income to contribute to it, mm-hmm. but it doesn't. the money doesn't have to come from him. So open the account, and we will match anything he puts into that account. It's funny that your son found a job that he can also be shirtless. And- <laughs> 
How does that work? <laughs> they just gravitate to jobs where shirts aren't required. No shoes, no shirt, no problem at the Brokamp house. Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. No, it does not. <laughs> That's just how he keeps his pants on. <laughs> well, he's young yet. He's, he's got to learn the ways, the ways of his father and dropping trowel. <laughs> So everyone out there in podcast line, this is because I have in the past dropped my pants in company meetings just in case you got taken my shirt <laughs> off in company and let's meetings. Let's not provide any context, by the way. It's taking pictures of me sleeping with a carrot. It's just very horrible. Let's move on to the next question. <laughs> <laughs> this comes from Connor. My name is Connor Lott. Uh, I'm originally from Las Vegas, Nevada, and I'm on the editorial team as an intern for this summer. Uh, my question is, what is tax loss harvesting, and can I use short-term capital losses to offset long-term capital gains? I'm fairly certain Connor just defined tax loss harvesting <laughs> in his question about tax loss harvesting. Cool. So, tax loss harvesting, if you have an investment that is at a price that is below what you paid for it, outside of a retirement account, you can sell that and then use that loss to offset any capital gains, and then beyond that, your ordinary income up to $3,000 a year. So Some people do this throughout the year as a way to lower their tax bill. And Yes, the answer is you can use short-term losses to offset long-term gains. What you normally do, if you have gains and losses of both long and short-term variety, you have to net them out. So The long-term losses against the long-term gains, short-term losses against the short-term gains, and then whatever's left over, you kind of net it out, and then if you still have losses, then you have that $3,000 Every year against income. If you have losses beyond that, you get to carry them forward to the following years. Um, it's something worth considering. I, I think for some people, they get a little too hung up on tax loss harvesting. Um, and especially if Connor is one of our interns, younger, maybe not at a higher tax bracket to begin with, it may not be that big of a deal. Yeah, just hold on. Just hold on to the shares. Yeah, it might be. I mean, I, I'm especially if it's a, if it's a stock that you don't want to keep anyhow. You might as well do it. If it's a stock you want to keep, you have to sell it and then wait 30 days to buy it back. Otherwise, you can't take the loss. It's called the wash sale rule. Um, and so, what happens in the 30 days? What if the stock skyrocketed while you're waiting those 30 days? So, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do it, especially if you're in a higher tax bracket. It can it can be worthwhile, but I'm not sure it's worth. Too much of Connor's time. Yeah, I'm blown away that so many people ask us about this like it's the holy grail of financial advice. And I just, even this young fella here, how did you even hear about it? It's just not that useful of a tool. You know why? Because people like the idea that they can get one up on the, the IRS. IRS. Yeah. They like the idea that there's like, ah, I'm going to keep as much of my money as I can. I got you, tax man. I'm going to be really bad at investing <laughs> and then to offset some of my gains. So, right. yeah. you know, for long-term capital gains, if if you're in the 10% and 15% tax bracket, long-term capital gains are tax-free. Yeah. You don't yeah. even need to worry about them. So, I mean, you know, maybe Connor has a lot of money and it's something you should be paying attention to, but I will say this, good for him for being aware of it. Yeah. And and it says to me that he's a knowledgeable guy, and he's on his way to being pretty financially literate. And I would just say, just be careful, because I know a lot of folks who get trapped into this notion. They are committed to the idea of utilizing tax loss harvesting to the point where they become bad investors. Otherwise, good investors become bad investors because they're so focused on trying to utilize the capital gains netting rules. And there's been instances where they've been doing it all along, and they have so much in wash sale rule, they didn't even know was going to happen. They just have been doing it and not being aware of all the impact 
that they are having against wow. themselves. And so just be careful. All right. And our last question comes from Becca. I'm Becca Benson. I'm currently working with the web development team. And my question is, when is a good time to pay off all of your student loans? Great. Oh, yeah, this is this question had to come. Yeah, and it's a great question. I would say delay as much as you can. No, that's not good advice. Um, <laughs> forget it, don't pay them off. <laughs> the government will forgive it after 10 years anyway. That's not no, true. No, I don't. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that, but people think that. Oh, there are. I mean, there are some programs where that if you work in like public nursing for the state or whatever. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, so what's the real answer? <laughs> <laughs> what's the good advice? Yeah, so uh, I would say... This is one of those instances where it would be helpful to look at it in the context of your budget. And so, if you are determining what your payback should be, let's say you you, you have a savings goal of 15%, a callback to our earlier question, and then you have all of your other discretionary income. What's left to pay down student loans? Or what do you want student loans to be as a function of your income? And that can sort of get you into a place where you can back into how long it's going to take you to pay them off and then gauge whether that's an acceptable time period or not. Usually the interest rates are low at the beginning and then might reset to the standard 6.5% um, if you're in some sort of you know early deferral period or, or something like that. And you usually are better off carrying student loan debt in terms of building your credit score. And so you don't necessarily want to be solely focused on paying off student loans. Another component of it is that if you're solely focused on paying student loans, you forget about that 15% that you should be saving for retirement, and you've lost the opportunity of saving early and getting that compounding train going. Right, and you might have missed out on the match that your portfolio, that your employer would have been offering a 401k contribution, as well as the tax benefits of a 401k. So, a sort of piggyback question to this we often get is, I have student loans, should I pay them off before I start saving for retirement? And I would say the answer is generally no, yeah. especially if you're going to get a good employer match on your 401k. And more commonly, especially as a young person, a lot of companies are starting to offer help assistance with student loans, and so you can sort of evaluate that in terms of where you might want to take a job. It's a newer benefit, and not all companies represent it, but it's an opportunity. All right, well, that's the show. That's our question. So I want to thank our interns, Addison, Anish, Becca, Brian, Connor, Ellie, and Ryan. These are they're sharp kids. Yeah, they're, they're pretty right. They're a smart bunch. They're a handsome bunch. <laughs> And we are proud to have them spend the summer with us here at the Motley Fool. We we spoil our interns, we by do. the way. It's a nice deal. It is a very nice deal. So if you, it's actually, I think it's actually harder to get an internship at the Motley Fool than it is to get like accepted into Harvard. Is that true? Yeah, like our acceptance, like our acceptance rate is insane. Wow. Yeah, so. I was in a meeting with Ellie, one of the interns, and she was bossing me around. And she's I've worked here for <laughs> over three years now. And... <laughs> it's a lot easier to get a job here than an internship. <laughs> Obviously. Um, maybe that's just an indictment on how bad I am at my job. <laughs> All right. So, like I said, that's the show. It is edited fetchingly by Rick Engdahl. Get coffee, coffee fetchingly, coffee fetch the intern. Got we, it. we don't even make our interns go fetch coffee. Like, seriously. We no wonder they're spoiled. I thought you meant that I looked fetching. Thank you. Oh, yes. Just like an intern. Keep those postcards coming. Our address is 2000 Duke Street, second floor, Alexandria, Virginia, 22314. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Oh, and thanks again, Sean. My pleasure. I should thank you, too. <laughs> 